We're going to be looking in Romans chapter 5, and uh, beginning tonight, we're going to look for the next several weeks um, at uh, some of the blessings of believing, some of the benefits of believing. What difference does it make uh, to be a believer in Christ? And here in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to give us, under inspiration, of course, a number of those benefits of believing. He begins saying in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith. It is not a coincidence tonight that I am <laughs> bouncing back now from uh, James uh, chapter 2, where we've been for the last couple of weeks and our discussion of saving faith and that great question that James asked, can faith save him? And now going back to Romans chapter 5 and looking at the inspired discussion of the Apostle Paul, therefore being justified by faith. I want to remind you tonight there's no contradiction in the thinking of James and the Apostle Paul. Although the backgrounds and the personalities of these two men, no doubt, were entirely different. We can see, no, I didn't know James. I'm not that old. I didn't know Paul. I'm not uh, old. But uh, we can see a lot of their personality in their writing. You see, when God gave us the, the Holy Scriptures, when He inspired them to be written, uh, we believe in a, a principle known as verbal plenary inspiration. That's a fancy theological term that simply means that God did not dictate uh, to those men what they were going to say. They weren't court stenographers, uh, if you can remember those kind of things. They were not sitting out there as God dictated those letters to them and told them exactly what to say. The Holy Spirit, though, inspired these men, and He used their talents, their abilities, and their personalities, yes, but in it all, the Holy Spirit of God was working and inspiring them so that He used them to write His inspired, God-breathed, inerrant Word. So their personality comes through. Paul, of course, was a trained theologian. He was a beneficiary of one of the finest theological schools that Judaism had. He was also greatly educated in all of the classical disciplines of his day, so that not only did he have the equivalent of a doctor's degree in theology, uh, at least one, <laughs> uh, but he also then would have had a doctor's degree in that uh, secular education, so that he was well-versed in all of those disciplines of his day. Uh, as a trained theologian, then Paul could uh, approach this whole concept of justification by faith from that background, and he does. Now, James, we've talked about, uh, we can see a lot of the difference in him. And James was uh, one of the brothers of Jesus. He grew up in a, in a peasant's home. Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people. He was a carpenter. They were hard-working folks. James was not a trained theologian. James was a trained carpenter. <laughs> and like most carpenters who were used to making their, their uh, living by the level and by the square, James called it like he saw it. And we've seen that. 
over the last couple of weeks. Um, you show me your faith without you, or I'll show you my faith without my works. Faith without works is dead. Paul and James were writing to the same audience, in a sense, because both of them, Paul himself, like James, though he was a trained theologian, though he was a devout Jew, though he was a Pharisee, Paul was lost before he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul was lost. And he could address himself then to the Jewish people who had the same thing. They, they understood the law. They made their boast of the law. And you see that coming through in Paul's writings. So where on the one hand, James was going to address the religious lost of his day, the Jews of his day, confident. They had a faith. They believed in God. They thought they were saved, and they weren't. And he addresses then those religious lost in a very practical way, and he proves it. He proves, their, demonstrates their lostness, the fact that their faith was a dead faith, not a real faith, not a saving faith, but a dead faith. And James dealt with that in a very practical way. But Paul's different Paul's a theologian. And what we have then in Romans chapter 5 and in the preceding passages are a classic discussion of where Paul took the, the principles demonstrated in the Old Testament and he made a masterful and very logical argument to do the same thing. You see, one of the hardest things about a person who is religiously lost is to get them to understand that they're lost. And so Paul is going to make that argument very logically, very powerfully, very forcefully, very biblically. He uses his great training to do that. You'll see it back in chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world, and that was both Jew and Gentile, all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. The law showed that all mankind were guilty of sin before holy and righteous God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That was a very crushing summation to his argument, but he's not through. He goes on in verse 21, this famous passage. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. That is the righteousness of God, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He would move on from there then to give us His discussion of Abraham. Same thing we've been talking about on Sunday morning the last couple of weeks. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him 
for righteousness. Once he establishes that great point then, and that's basically the whole point of Romans chapter 4, Paul will then go on to give us five distinct blessings or benefits that are ours because we have been justified by faith. Again, no contradiction between these two men. They're arriving at the same place. They were dealing with a group of people who were raised all their life to be believers in God, but they were lost. They were dealing with a group of people, many of whom had, in, in Romans, Paul broadens his argument because he's also talking to Gentile people. Many of them had been raised in asceticism. They'd been raised in self-denial to live a good life, and, and then that would pay in the afterlife. That was the pagan views. Paul deals with those as well. There were also those in, his, in, in, in the audience that he's going to speak to in, in Romans. And you'll see them in Romans chapter 1. They had bought into the philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. And he describes then how that this manifested itself in their idolatry, false religion. Again, they thought that it was going to pay off in the afterlife, but the best thing they could do would be just to indulge their passions. And, and he lays them out as well. So across the board, then, Paul delivers these arguments, and he sums up with a simple summation. Jew, Gentile, <laughs> male, female, Tall, short, overweight, skinny, blonde, brunette, redhead, lots of hair, not much. Educated, uneducated, barbarian, Scythian, bonder, free. All the world was guilty before holy and righteous God. I want you to know tonight that the world is no less guilty in 2020 before God than it was when Paul wrote this all those many years ago. God's opinion of sin has not changed. Man's opinion of God hasn't changed a whole lot either. And so as he lays out this case and then presents what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us a marvelous discussion of these five things we're going to look at over the next few weeks that being a believer does for us. And it isn't surprising tonight that he starts with the peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That'll be the substance of what we look at tonight. And I want to begin by describing this, or giving us a definition, rather, of this peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 very famously speaks of having the peace of God. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God... The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. The peace of God, then, is demonstrated to be the result of substituting prayer for worry. And it gives us that classic rule of thumb I've talked to you about many times before, but I'll mention it again tonight because y'all have probably forgotten it. 
And uh, no offense. <laughs> uh, if it is big enough to worry about, folk, it is big enough to pray about. Worry accomplishes absolutely nothing. And when the Bible tells us then, be careful, don't worry about anything. When we choose to worry about stuff, we're actually sinning. We're violating the Word of God. God said, don't do that. Why? Because worry accomplishes nothing. Jesus asked you, how many of you can worry yourself taller? How's that work for you? Can you add yourself, can you add cubits to your stature? Can you make yourself go from five foot nothing to six foot five just by worrying about it? No, no. I can't even absolutely verify for you tonight that worrying burns any calories. I don't think it even makes us skinnier. You know why? Because when we start worrying, you know what we're going to do next? We're going to eat. That's right. I need some ice cream. I'm telling you. Let's go to Dairy Queen, honey. <laughs> I need one of those chocolate chip cookie dough thingies. I... Blizzards, man, make me feel better. <laughs> Worrying accomplishes nothing. Prayer changes things. And so the Bible tells us when we substitute prayer for worry, we experience the peace of God, which passes understanding. That means we can't explain it. We can't define it. We can't even tell somebody what it feels like, really. All we can say is that there's an assurance in our hearts that things are going to be okay. I've taken my burden, my worry, my care, my concern to the throne room of God, and I've left it with Him. And if God's going to sit up and take care of it, then why should I worry about it? I'm going to leave it with Him, knowing that our God is faithful and true. peace of God. But that's not the subject of Romans 5. Great sermon. Love to talk about it. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. The Bible also speaks of a fruit of the Spirit that is involves or includes the peace of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. We're not talking about the fruits of the Spirit. It's not plural. It is one fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but God is faithful to give us all the ingredients of that fruit. And so he tells us this is what's there. And the top three are love, joy, and peace. Peace, then, is a precious gift from God that the Holy Spirit brings to us by living in our life. Like He gives us the ability to love and He gives us the ability to experience joy and He gives us the ability to be long-suffering and gentle and good and yes, to have faith. He also gives us peace. Peace. But that's not what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. When he talks about having peace with God, he's not talking about a feeling He's not talking about an, 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 uh, uh, an assurance or a quietness that might come into our heart. It's not an emotion. The peace that he speaks about here is a legally made peace. A peace that we would call a cessation of hostilities. 
the end of the enmity. You see, in our natural condition, when we are unsaved, we are at enmity with God. And that enmity and hostility then between God and man has been replaced by a permanent declaration of the peace. It's not just a ceasefire. A ceasefire can be declared and, and the hostility still be there. Uh, it's not even like uh, uh, the kind of peace that we see a lot of times in this world. Many of us remember something that was called the Cold War. <laughs> in a lot of ways, I'm beginning to wonder if we're not still fighting a Cold War. Uh, but that was in opposition to the hot war, which was World War II and, and, uh, and all that went along with that. But then uh, that was over, and there was a, a peace treaty that was declared, but then all of a sudden there's a, another kind of war that sets in. The hostilities, you see, were still there. We stopped shooting at each other, but the hostility was still there, and what was once opened then just goes underground. That's not what we have with God. Aren't you glad that's true? That when God dealt with hostility, the enmity between himself and sinful man, God made an absolute and lasting peace that resulted not only in the cessation of hostilities, but with the establishment of a real relationship. We've been reconciled to God. You know what it's like to have hostility erupt between you and another person. It might be a neighbor, good friend. It might be somebody in your own household or in your own family. And all of a sudden, this hostility exists. This enmity comes. There's anger. Maybe we're not shooting at each other, hope we're not, but uh, uh, sometimes we do something even worse. We talk about each other. Sometimes we talk about each other like this. And the hostility is fed, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. Now, we can stop the hostility. We can even make a declaration of peace. We're never going to do it anymore. But let me ask you a quick question. Is our relationship ever really the same after that happens? And the answer is, it can be, can it? It can be. Maybe not the same, it can be better. There can be a restoration of relationship. Even if it doesn't go back like it was. But you and I know how tough that is. Aren't you glad that when God made peace between himself holy God and sinful man that he gave us a complete restoration of relationship so that he is our father and we're in his forever family and he gives us the assurance I will never leave you nor forsake you wow complete end of hostility part of God's forever family. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if that's the definition of peace, then we need to see how this, how this peace was declared 
It is through Jesus Christ, and it is dependent upon the work of our Lord and Savior. A few years ago, much controversy settled down in the Christian community uh, about whether Jesus was our Lord or whether he was our Savior. And uh, really, to me, it it was always a a kind of a ludicrous argument. You might not even remember it was going on. Uh, But let's just see it. We have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ask then, are we saved by believing in Jesus as our Savior? And the answer is yes. Are we saved then by believing that Jesus is Lord? Yes. We don't approach Jesus in any other way. He is our Lord and Savior. Amen tonight? He's both. We can't split them up and decide one or the other. That's impossible. He is Lord and He is Savior. He is the King of kings, the Master, the Creator of all things. Yes, Jesus is Lord. That is the fundamental uh, basis of our peace with God. Since He is our Lord, that means He has every right to tell us what to do and expect us to do it. If we as a Christian are still trying to approach life saying, well, it's mine, I can live it like I want, then you're missing something. There's a deep spiritual problem. If we are operating then under that value, on that value system, or trying to, that says, I'm my own Lord, and that part of it is always there. Uh, It has a name in the scripture, it's called the flesh. Uh, The flesh wants what it wants. Uh, The flesh has its own desires. The flesh wants to live, whatever, and do whatever. And I can vouch for this much. I've been saved now for almost 53 years. Be 53 years come July. Maybe I have been saved 53. It'll be 54 come July. 54, that's it. 54 come July. After 54 years, I can tell you this much. My flesh is not really any better than it ever was. I keep thinking it will improve. I've been preaching to it for 50, uh, all these years, taking it to church all these years, preaching to it for 40-something of those years. You'd think it would be better by now. I say with Paul the Apostle, for I know that is in me. Paul said this. I just echo it, and it's true of me too. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. That's what he said. So that part of me is still there. That part of me that says, I'm the Lord of me. I'm the boss of me. I can live what I want. I can do what I want. It is still there. Still there. But if we're saved, then Jesus is our Lord and Master. And we submit to Him when we call upon Him to be our Savior. And in that submission, we have this assurance. He himself is our peace. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. Jesus is our peace. That does not require a significant uh, analysis of that magnificent passage. We'll look at it more in, in later messages. But now I just want us to see that underlying parts. all I'm going to talk about. He himself is our peace. Now, I think this moves beyond tonight just the discussion of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, although that's the main thing that's under consideration there. 
It's not just what Jesus did that guarantees our peace. It's who He is. He Himself is our peace. God did not just uh, send Jesus into this world as a fully grown man, uh, show up uh, just a few days uh, before Passover, uh, have a big confrontation with the Jews, get crucified, buried, rose again. I mean, he could, he could have wrapped this whole thing up in just three or four days. Had a big fight, end up crucified, buried, not stay buried, crucified on Friday, buried Saturday, rose Sunday, go back to heaven on Monday. Of course, that would have wiped out all that teaching stuff that he did for three and a half years and and the preparation of the disciples. So we know there was more to it than that. But you know, there was a 30-year period where Jesus lived a relatively normal life, and the Bible says nothing about it. Almost 10 times of Jesus' life. (laughs) We know about that three years, but he was 33 years old, a little over, when he died. So almost 10 times. As much. Jesus lived in obscurity, part of a peasant family, making furniture. He had important stuff to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he was doing important stuff the whole time he was here. Why? Because the Bible gives us the assurance he was tempted in all points, like as you and I are, yet without sin. It's no small measure comfort to me to know that Jesus' life included being a baby. And yet as a baby and a toddler, he didn't sin. Jesus' life included adolescence and puberty. And yet as an adolescent young teenager, Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was a carpenter. And even as a carpenter, he didn't sin. Jesus lived in a full and perfect life so that his life could be counted to my life just as my imperfect, sinful, weak, failing life was counted as his life. God treated him as if he lived your life and mine. So that he could treat you and me as if we lived Jesus' life. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 tells us. For he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. He counted Jesus as living your life and yours. So that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He counted me as if I lived Jesus' life. My sin was counted as His. His righteousness was counted as mine. I'm not in any way tonight, and I hope you know me by now well enough to know I would never, I would not in any way try to diminish the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. While that is true, it is also true 
that the Bible says he himself is our peace. And it speaks to us of the person, Jesus Christ. It reminds us that he had lived in this world for 33 and a half years. And he did not live in some isolated monastery, hidden away, secluded from the world. God put him out there in the marketplace of life. A working man. So that he was in all points, in all points, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He won the victory over sin. That's why he could be our sinless Savior. You understand then why that's so vital. He himself is our peace. Why is that so true to us and why is that so important to us? Because the peace that we have through Jesus Christ is a full and complete peace. Because Jesus lived a full and complete peace and sinless life. It used to be really popular to hear people talk about how I need to make my peace with God. You ever heard anybody say that? I, I have. I, you hear it a lot of times, or used to, would hear it when people maybe had been away from the Lord for a long time. And, you know, sometimes some people would say things like that when they got sick, or maybe they were thinking they might die. They were going to go in to have surgery. I want to make my peace with God. Let me give you something tonight. We can't do what's already been done. Jesus Christ made peace. And that peace was, came because he lived as a sinless man in a sinful world. He died then a substitutionary death on the cross. He didn't die for his own sin. He died for your sin and mine. He was buried, but he didn't stay buried. He rose again the third day. And he gives then this assurance. He himself is our peace. And Paul then can say it. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The application of this truth to all of us is very simply expressed. Jesus has cornered the market on the peace of God. Jesus has cornered the market on having peace with God. If you want the peace that is the fruit of the Spirit, there's only one way to get it, and that is through Jesus Christ. He Himself is our peace. This message is in many ways particularly suited to the world you and I are living in because when you look around you tonight, you won't see peace anywhere. You're going to see a world full of turmoil. And people are living out the reality that their hearts are restless. They're searching for something. What they're searching for is peace. But they'll never find it anywhere in this world. The peace they long for, the peace they need, the peace that you and I experience is a peace that works real well in the midst of turmoil because turmoil can't disturb that peace. It works real well in the midst of difficulty because difficulty cannot disturb that peace. Storms might come and the waters may rage and the wind may blow, but you know what? Down deep in your heart and mine, there's a place in us that the wind never touches <laughs> because we have peace with God. And no matter what, no matter what goes on out here, <laughs> we all know what's going to go on up there. Amen? We have peace with God. Oh. 
how we need to live that out before a storm-tossed world tonight. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Let's stand together.